we get into the lesson tonight as we continue our study of Philippians, uh, a little bit of a follow-up to what we discussed in class this morning, if you were in the auditorium class. We're discussing uh, the book of Galatians, and in Galatians 5, we are uh, at verse 19, dealing with the works of the flesh, and uh, in conjunction with that, uh, we had some discussion. Uh, as we said this morning, you would have had to have been living in a cave not to have known all the furor that has been created recently with the Duck Dynasty situation and the comments about homosexuality that Phil Robertson made. And uh, Brother Steve had called to my attention that among the reaction to, uh, to that was a cancellation by Cracker Barrel of all the products, or at least the product, all the products relating to uh, him, featuring him. They had taken all of those products off the shelves. And um, then um, I was handed this story tonight uh, from the Fox News website by Todd Starnes, a Fox News contributor, uh, from Cracker Barrel, uh, saying we were flat out wrong. That's the message that they are sending, and they are ordering all of the products back on the shelves. They had so much uh, response from uh, individuals uh, by uh, their Facebook and uh, in all sorts of uh, ways, including from uh, Governor, former Governor Mike Huckabee and Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council and uh, just all sorts of customers. Um, and so as a result of that uh, overwhelming response, they have apologized and uh, have uh, restored those uh, products uh, back to their uh, shelves. They said our intent was to avoid offending, but that's just what we've done. <laughs> By trying to avoid offending, that's what we've done, they said. You told us we made a mistake and you weren't shy about it. You wrote, you called, and you took to social media to express your thoughts and feelings. So I thought in fairness uh, we needed to follow up on that since we had mentioned that they had done that. Uh, now they are back. And Janice gave blood the other day, and they're supposed to send her a gift card to Cracker Barrel, so I guess we can use it now. You're right. <laughs> so uh, we can feel good about using that gift card now to Cracker Barrel. But, uh, yes, uh, I thought it would be fair to pass that along since we had talked about that uh, uh, this morning. Philippians chapter 3, verses 15 through 21. That's where we are in our study of uh, this uh, letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at uh, Philippi. And in the section we just completed in verses 12 through 14, we called those verses Paul's program for uh, spiritual uh, development, where he um, indicated in verse uh, 12 that he had not already attained or was already perfected. Now, down at verse uh, 15, uh, he will say as we begin our study tonight, Therefore let us as many as are mature, that's the New King James, but uh, some translations mention or use the word perfect. Uh, and so in verse 12, he said, Not that I've already attained or am already perfected. And then in verse 15, he says, Let as many of us as are perfect. Uh, is there a contradiction there? Certainly not. Uh, perfected back in verse 12, which we studied, was in the perfect tense, indicating I have not already been perfected. I have not already attained that which I'm striving uh, for in terms of the ultimate goal. I'm not there yet, but I am uh, on my way. Now, in verse 15, 
when he says, therefore let us as many as are perfect, or as the New King James translates it, mature, he's talking about just that, maturity. Mature is a good, is a good translation of it because he's talking about those who uh, have matured in their Christian growth and who have reached a point where they are stable and uh, where they have applied themselves to those things that have brought about that maturation, produced that maturation process. You remember we mentioned that in Hebrews 5, the writer there uh, admonished those, chastised the, the Hebrew Christians because they had reached a point in terms of the time that they had been Christians when they should have been teaching others, and yet they had need that someone teach them again the first principles of the oracles of God and had become such as had need of milk and not of uh, strong food or meat. And so what Paul is saying here simply is we're talking here to as many as are meat eaters. That is those who have matured to that point of being stable. And it reminds us that Christianity as we're looking at in the series we're involved in on Sunday mornings about to conclude that Christianity is a growing process whereby we move indeed to higher ground as we often sing uh, in that great old hymn. doesn't mean that we're not saved uh, when we become Christians, but once we are saved, we are, as we're studying in 1 Peter 2, to desire the pure milk of the Word that we may grow thereby. Grow to what? Grow to maturity. Grow to a point of being uh, mature. Let us then, as many as are mature, have this mind. What mind is it we are to have? Well, earlier he talked about the mind of Christ in uh, Philippians uh, 2, but here in the immediate context, he obviously, I think, is referring back to what he has just uh, uh, written, that we have not arrived, but that we have the mindset that says we have not been perfected in the, t in the sense of reaching the ultimate goal, and that we are going, going to forget those things which are behind. We're going to continue to reach forward to those things which are ahead. We are going to press toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Now he says, as many of us as are mature in our thinking, let's make sure that we have this kind of attitude, that we have this kind of mindset. And he adds... And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. You know, this reminds us, or I think should remind us, of the importance of attitude in living the Christian life. It reminds us of the importance of attitude in our Christian walk. What is our attitude? Is it an attitude that says, Speak, Lord, thy servant heareth? Is it the attitude that says, I want to know what the Word of God says, and, and I'm an open book from the standpoint that I am objective and honest in my search for truth. I don't come to the study of the Word of God with a preconceived idea. I don't have a dogmatic attitude about certain things and then look for justification for what I am doing uh, in Scripture. That I have a faith in the inspiration of Scripture, and my attitude is that I want God to reveal those things to me that I need to know. How is he going to do it? Through the Word of God. Now, with that having been said, we need to keep in mind that when Paul penned these words, this book I hold in my hand was not in its completed form. And that they were in a process where letters such as the Philippian letter, the Colossian letter, other letters were being circulated and uh, obviously, 
the process was underway whereby inspiration was being, uh, was being revealed to these inspired men uh, who wrote the, the words of Scripture, and that if there was anything that had not fully been revealed in terms of the finer points of various things, uh, obviously not related to their eternal salvation, that is, that which had saved them from sin, uh, it would, otherwise they would, we would have to conclude they were in a state where they might not even know that they're saved. But there was still there was still revelation that was being given. God is not revealing things to us in the way that perhaps Paul had in mind as he penned uh, these words, that there'll be uh, further instruction that will be uh, coming that can clarify or help you as you continue your Christian uh, growth. But the principle that we need to appreciate here is that God has now reveal to us through his word all that pertains to life and godliness. We're not in a process where uh, the uh, gospel is in uh, inspired men. It's in an inspired book. But what should our attitude be toward that book? It should be the same attitude that Paul is, um, is uh, calling for here. An attitude that you have a mind that you want to learn. That is, that you are receptive to what is being taught, as it is being uh, revealed, as problems arose in the church, for example, and questions arose. Remember the first Corinthian uh, letter and the Apostle Paul responded by saying, as you wrote to me about these problems, here's my response. That was a revelation there that we now have in its complete and final uh, form. And so when problems arise now, God doesn't reveal answers to us through inspired men as those problems arise. God has already revealed all that pertains to life and godliness in the written word. But the attitude, nonetheless, in that time in which Paul penned these words and the attitude in this time should be the same. What should that attitude be? That attitude should be that I want to know all that I can about the word of God and that my attitude is that if I need to grow in some areas, if I need uh, to change uh, in some things that I am doing, that I'm going to be receptive to the Word of God in bringing about that change. In other words, I want to know the will of God. I think that there is a passage that uh, makes it abundantly clear that the attitude uh, should be as I have just described it. In John chapter 7, in verse 17, Jesus said, If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. What's he saying then? there? He is addressing an attitude of heart that I believe Paul is calling upon the people at Philippi to have and the attitude of heart that every one of us should have in terms of our desire to, to know the Word of God as fully and completely as we possibly can and to be receptive to be receptive to what the Word of God tells me about any change that needs to take place in my life or how I may grow in certain qualities as we're studying on Sunday morning. The Word of God can help me to become more patient, as we talked about this morning. The Word of God tells me about the necessity of being full of good works, as we talked about this morning. The Word of God supplies me with the knowledge and the humility, the last two qualities about which we will speak next Sunday morning, the Lord willing. The Word of God has all the answers, 
But the key is, what is my attitude toward those answers? Is my attitude that that Jesus expresses in John 7, 17? If anyone wants to do his will, then he'll know. He'll know. What if I don't want to do his will? What will my attitude likely be toward this book? Totally different than those who desire to do the will of God. I'm going to look for loopholes. <laughs> the attitude will determine whether I look for the law of Christ for my life or if I look for the loopholes that I may perceive I can find to justify my behavior. We talked about it, we talked about it uh, this morning in, in Bible class in terms of the, the whole issue of homosexuality. And the statement that I said I had heard made this last week, just, just a statement that everybody's supposed to believe and everybody's supposed to understand. Homosexuality is not a choice. We all know that. That was the statement that I heard made. Homosexuality is not a choice. We all know that. Well, if I convince myself of that, then what will my attitude be toward the passages that clearly teach that homosexuality is a choice? I'm going to be prejudiced in my approach to that. But if my attitude is, this is the will of God, and I want to know what that will is for my life, even if it means that I have to make changes that may be very difficult for me to make, my attitude should be, speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. And I believe that's involved here in part in what Paul is saying here. If you are mature in your thinking as a Christian, if there are things you need to know, if your attitude is right, then if you'll go to the source, you'll get it right. If anyone wills to know his will, wants to do his will, he'll know of the doctrine, whether it is of God or, as Jesus said, whether I speak on my own authority. But then Paul adds in verse 16, Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, what has been revealed to us is a rule. It's not suggestion. Let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. You've heard about the, the canon of Scripture, the canon of Scripture being those books, Old and New Testament, that have been included in the Bible because they are a part of the canon. That's the word that is, uh, that is used here that is translated rule. Let's walk by the same canon. And canon simply was a measuring uh, rod, a rounded, smooth wooden rod that was straight against which things could be measured uh, to make sure that they were in a straight line, like a carpenter's uh, line, something that was used to measure and make, something, uh, make sure it was straight. What Paul is saying here, let's walk by that straight line. Let's walk by the what? By the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. The very admonition itself makes it abundantly clear that there is absolute truth and that it is not fluid, that it is not flexible, and that we have that completed rule book, and I hold it in my hand, the New Testament of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are those who, as we said this morning in Bible class again, when something comes up, an issue such as the homosexual issue, and then a passage is quoted uh, as 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 was quoted by this uh, Phil Robertson, uh, then there are those who say, yes, he quoted Scripture, but, but, 
There's so many interpretations. There's so many interpretations. And as I said this morning, I could say it to make it fit tonight. If I tell you tonight it's dark out there, then if you tell me, no, that's your interpretation, it's really light according to me. Well, I believe it's dark, and I believe nobody should argue with that. That's how clear the Bible's teaching is on the subject of homosexuality. That's how clear the Bible's teaching is on all that which pertains to our salvation. Does that mean that everything um, is, is in such a way that we don't have to spend any time in ascertaining truth, that there are not some things of the Word of God that are, that are deeper than others? Of course there are. And the, the Apostle Peter made that clear in his statement in Second Peter about some of Paul's writings in which some things which are hard to be understood, he said, didn't say they can't be understood, it just says take some effort. And he says some rest or twist those scriptures to their own destruction. What should we do with those scriptures that may require more mental industry on our part? What should we do with those? Just look at them and say, well, I, I don't get that. I'm not going to fool with that. That's beyond me. That's too deep for me. No. No, if it's, if it's there, we need to study it. We need to take the time and exert the mental industry to study those things that are so pertinent and relevant to our salvation because this is the rule book. Let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. And then the Apostle Paul says, Brethren, join in following my example. Join. The idea of together. All of you together Follow my example. It's reminiscent of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, when he said, Be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. He didn't say just imitate me, period, there. But in that text, he said, Be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. And therefore, that's clearly understood, though not stated here. Follow my example, clearly understood to say, as long as my example is worth following. Follow my example, because I'm following Christ. But I'm not the only one that's doing that, because he then says, and note those, as the New King James says, the King James says, mark those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. And there's that word pattern that so many people, and yes, tragically many in the church today, find so repugnant, and that is that there is a specific pattern that there is a rule. But already in the span of two verses, we have seen that we can walk by the same rule, by the same canon, and that we can follow a specific pattern. Not patterns, not rules in terms of varying and contradictory rules, but one set of rules, one specific pattern. Shouldn't it behoove me to spend the time I need to spend to know what that pattern reveals and to make sure that I'm following it and to make sure that I'm walking in the same group that Paul calls attention to here positively. You know, in Romans 16, 17, the same writer said, mark those who cause division and occasions of stumbling. Contrary to the doctrine of Christ, turn away from them, mark them, marking in a negative sense, but here's a marking in a positive sense. We're also to mark or note or take notice of those who walk as they should be walking and determine that we're going to be in that group. 
and that all of us are going to walk together imitating the example of the Apostle Paul as he imitated the example of Jesus Christ. But then he draws a contrast. After calling upon his readers to mark or note those who were doing right and walking right and to walk in that same group with them, he then, by way of contrast, says in verse 18 here, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, we've alluded to this verse. In fact, we talked about it just this morning, really, in Bible class, about attitude. When we talked about the, the importance of standing against sin and yet loving the sinner and making sure that as we stand against sin, we do so in a way that doesn't become counterproductive to what we're standing against because our attitude is so bad that people don't hear what we're saying in terms of standing against the error or the sin that's involved. Let's make sure, let's make sure that as we do stand against those things that are wrong, no one can fault us for the attitude that we display in so doing. And the Apostle Paul gives us that attitude here when he says, even weeping. I'm talking about those who are not walking as they should now, in contrast to those he's just mentioned. He says, and I have told you about them what? One time I issued a warning, but I don't want to be negative, and so I didn't do that, but one time. No. He said, I, I have told you often. I have told you often. In other words, the Apostle Paul certainly practiced and preached a balanced approach to the preaching of the gospel of Christ. But he did not apologize at any point in time for being negative, if you will, as some would view it. You remember 2 Timothy 4 and verse verses 1 and 2? I charge you, therefore, writing to Timothy, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead and disappearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. Convince, King James says reprove, convince, rebuke, that's a negative term, exhort, that's a positive term, with all longsuffering and teaching. The preaching of the gospel is a balance. It is a balance between positive and negative, and there are negative things that have to be brought out. There are things that have to be preached that people construe as being negative, but nonetheless they must be preached. We dare not ignore those things, but even when we do have to warn, we need to warn with the kind of attitude that Paul expressed here, warning and weeping. And you remember another passage that's very similar to the one we're looking at here in Philippians 3.18. It's in Acts chapter 20. To the Ephesian elders, to the Ephesian elders, he mentioned to them, verse 31 of Acts 20, Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Notice this. I've told you about these people often, and I'm telling you about them now again. How? Even weeping. Acts 20, 31, warned everyone night and day with tears. It demonstrates the compassion 
that the Apostle Paul had for the error, uh, for those who were in error as well as those who were being led astray by that error. He had a compassion for the souls of all men and a passion for the gospel of Christ. And he was determined to preach it. But as he did in a way that had to point out sin in people's lives, he took absolutely no pleasure whatsoever in doing that. But rather, he warned with tears. But he did not mince words as he issued the warnings that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. I don't think we have to guess about what Paul is trying to say here about these people. Uh, false teachers, those who were worldly, those who were Judaizing teachers, all of them may be involved in, in the groups that Paul had in mind here. But he makes it abundantly clear that because of their lifestyle, because of their teaching, because of a combination of both lifestyle and teaching, they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. And he says, whose end, verse 19, is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame who set their mind on earthly things. Remember in Colossians 3.1, he said, set your mind on things above. Here he talks about a group of people who set their mind on just the opposite. They set their mind on earthly things, whose God is their belly. They're interested in the here and now. They're interested in, in pleasure, whatever that pleasure may be. Uh, they uh, glory in their shame. That is, they actually glory in their shameful conduct. Can you think of any examples of people today who are glorying in their shameful conduct? Why, how many could you think of uh, who glory in their shameful uh, conduct and who just basically have an in-your-face type approach uh, to it and have no shame whatsoever, no qualms about it uh, whatsoever? Why, this, this knockout game that is that is going on in so many cities around the country, uh, I think that would be one example of glorying in shameful uh, conduct, wouldn't you say? As they walk up to people unsuspectingly and just completely knock them out, and then what? Put it on the Internet. That's glorying in shameful activity, isn't it? And that's just one of thousands of examples that could be ultimately cited. This Miley Cyrus girl has gone from Disney to disgusting in terms of what she is doing, what she is doing, and glorying in that. And tragically, so many are who are her fans. And on and on we could go. Paul says... These are people whose end is destruction, which doesn't mean ultimately they're going to be annihilated. That's what some would take in a heartbeat if you could give it to them. They would just say, if I can do everything I want to do, and then when I die, I'm like Rover, dead all over, I'll take that. And some people live that way and believe that, but he's not saying that's what's going to happen to them at the end. Whose end is eternal punishment is what he obviously is saying here whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. 
Well, what about us? Here we are, hopefully. Here we are in verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven. I know there are many here who have traveled outside this country. And I've been privileged to travel outside uh, this country on mission trips and Bible lands trips and other things. And, and Janice and my family, my family and I, we lived in Malaysia uh, in a foreign land. But if you go to a foreign country, take a trip, or, or you're there for any length of time, do you think about home, or do you consider yourself home, or do you, do you want to come home? Usually you do, don't you? In fact, you always do, don't you? You might enjoy the trip and the experience, but still, there's no place like home. And when you're on that trip in that foreign country, how do you represent your homeland? Are you the ugly American? <laughs> uh, hopefully not, not anybody here. But are you even concerned as you're in that foreign country? Well, I'm an American here, and I, in a sense, I represent America. So I want to make sure I'm on my best behavior, and I don't want to be ugly and rude. I want people to think well of my home, so I'm going to make sure I'm a good representative of my home. We should think that way, shouldn't we? But now think about that from the spiritual standpoint. You're not home spiritually. You're not at home spiritually. You're in a foreign country spiritually. Your home, your citizenship is in heaven. How are you representing your heavenly home while you're in this foreign country? Are we being all that we can be and making sure and being cognizant and continually aware that we need to be on our best behavior because we are representatives of the heavenly citizenry. We are children of God who are in a foreign land. And we're on our way home, ultimately. How are we representing the Father in heaven and the heavenly home while we're here? We need to think about that every day that we live really our citizenship is in heaven and here's something else we need to think about the second coming of Christ how uppermost in people's thinking do you believe today and I'm talking about those who are Christians how uppermost in their thinking is the second coming of Christ day in and day out members of the Lord's church do we think about the second coming of Christ regularly and do we think about it as Paul tells us we ought to think about it here in this verse? He says, our citizenship is in heaven from which, that is from home, from home we eagerly wait for the Savior. And we've asked this question before in regard to this type thing in passages uh, such as this. Are we eagerly waiting for the Savior? Or would his return now be viewed by us as an interruption to our earthly programs and plans? Or would we be truly excited if we thought tonight, that tonight the Savior would come even before Santa Claus does? Or would we be disappointed that he came before Santa Claus did? You see, we can get so wrapped up 
in the things of this world that we may treat the second coming of Christ as something that really is on the back burner of our mind. And it really shouldn't be on the back burner of our mind, should it? We eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, which in effect says every morning when we wake up, basically the attitude ought to be this could be the day. This could be the day, and wouldn't that be exciting if it were the day? Because what's going to happen when he does come? The last verse of our study tonight says, who will transform our lowly body. Our lowly body. That it may be conformed to his glorious body. Is your body a lowly body? Is that an accurate statement? Mine's getting lowlier all the time. And that's true of all of us, isn't it? If we live long enough, we can identify even more with this statement about the lowly body. Or as some translations say, the body of our humiliation. The King James says vile body. I like lowly body better. Vile indicates something evil sometimes or maybe has that connotation. But the body of our humiliation, the body will be humiliated. The body is in the process of being humiliated. Physically, isn't it? Remember what Paul said elsewhere? Though our outward man is decaying, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Our bodies are being humiliated. That's a process that is natural. That is, we're, we're dying. And unless the Lord comes again before we do, when we die. And chances are, if we've lived a fairly long life, the body will have been humiliated, physically speaking, but, but we await a glorious body, a body that the power, the power of God can give us, the power of Christ can give us, just as that power is subduing all things to himself right now. All that awaits the dissipation, the dissolution of this world is one word from the Lord, and that'll do it. That'll do it. That kind of power that brought this universe into existence through Christ, the Word, the eternal Word, will take it out of existence. And that kind of power can take this lowly body and make it a glorious body, indeed. And I think probably the longer we live, the more we can appreciate and anticipate that glorious, that glorious body. But who can anticipate it? Only those who eagerly await the Savior. And only those who can truly eagerly await the Savior are those who are in a saved relationship with the Savior. Because for all others, the coming of Christ will be a shock that they do not want to experience. Not something they're looking forward to, but something they're counting on never happening. And when it does, tragically, there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth that 
is unimaginable for those who have not prepared themselves to eagerly await his return. Where are you tonight? In that group walking in imitation of the example of Paul as he imitates Christ? Or walking as the many walk? of whom he said, I've told you often and tell you now, even weeping, they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Everyone is an enemy of the cross of Christ who has not availed himself or herself of the saving power of that cross. And the way you do that is by accepting the terms that have been given by the one who died there long ago, believing that he is the Christ, repenting of your sins, confessing him to be the Christ, and then being buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. We plead with you to do that tonight if you haven't, and to come home if indeed you have been caught up too much in the things of this world and not in the things of the next where your true citizenship lies. If you need to respond tonight, will you come as we stand and sing to encourage you?